Section 14 of The Romance of Polar Exploration. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Romance of Polar Exploration by G. Firth Scott, Chapter 10. When Captain Ross was in the Arctic regions in the year 1818, he encountered, in Melville Bay, a tribe of Eskimos who lived near Cape York entirely cut off from communication with all other tribes, and who had not, so far as he could learn, ever met white men before. He was therefore astounded to find them in possession of iron implements. These consisted of rudely made knives, the cutting edges of which were fashioned out of very hard iron, harpoons and spears tipped with iron points. Questioning the natives as to how they had become possessed of the iron, they explained that it had been obtained from what they termed the Iron Mountain on the coast near the bay. Ross sought for the mountain and tried to induce the Eskimo to tell him exactly where it was situated, but failed in each case. He secured some of the iron knives and spearheads, and on his return to Great Britain, the articles were submitted for analysis, when the metal was found to contain a percentage of nickel mixed with the iron. Considerable curiosity was excited over the matter, and every succeeding British exploration party proceeding to the Arctic kept a sharp lookout for any trace of iron in the possession of Eskimo which could not have been obtained from whalers or visiting ships, as well as making every inquiry in order to ascertain where the mysterious iron mountain was situated. In no instance were they successful, and the question of where the Cape York Eskimo had obtained their supply of iron became one of the riddles of the North. When Peary went to the neighbourhood of Cape York to establish the station from whence he started on his brilliant march across the ice cap, he came closely in contact with the tribe of Eskimo living there. The members of this tribe, isolated from the world and out of communication with all their kindred tribes, were, he felt assured, the descendants of those with whom Ross was associated earlier in the century. In his successive visits to the place, Peary became on very friendly terms with the people and gained their confidence in a way that no other explorer had yet done. This is hardly to be wondered at when it is remembered that his presence among them from time to time raised them from the stress of hardship and poverty, often starvation itself, into a happy, well-to-do, and for an Eskimo tribe, prosperous community. When he first went among them, the man who owned a wooden shaft for his harpoon was regarded as a rich man, while the woman who had a steel sail needle was an heiress for whose hand the bravest and best strove in fierce rivalry. The possession of a gun was beyond the wildest dreams of the most imaginative, just as the possession of a steel knife was the highest glory to which ambition aspired. When Peary left his encampment at the end of his first visit, the timber of the house and fittings left behind alone made the tribe wealthy, for they believed the world must have been ransacked to bring so much wood together, while the distribution of needles, knives, scissors and such like trifles changed the whole status of the people and made them rich beyond their fondest hopes. On the next visit, Peary took some guns and ammunition for the leading men of the tribe, and there was then nothing they were not prepared to do for their benefactor. They worked, hunted, acted as guides, porters, anything in fact the white men wanted them to do. It was at this time Peary sought for information about the mysterious Iron Mountain, and, as may be expected, got it. First he was told the story of the origin of the iron, a story they had had from their fathers, as those fathers in their turn had had it from theirs. The iron lay across the bay, where a high peak stood out against the sky, pointing the way to the Savixoas. These, the iron ones, rested on the mountain where they had fallen ages and ages ago, 
when they were thrown out of their village in the sky by Tornasuk, the enemy. There were three of them, a man, a woman and a dog. The man was deep in the ground, the woman partly so, and the dog lay on the surface. As the woman fell, she sat up, and her head had first been seen. A strange tribe came over the ice one year, and in greed broke off the head and sought to carry it away with them in their kayaks, so that they should have a store of iron always with them. But Tornasuk would not allow this to be, and as soon as the kayaks, lashed together to make them strong enough to carry the head, were out in deep water, the head plunged through them, sinking out of sight and smashing the kayaks, so that the men who were in them barely escaped with their lives. After that, no one tried to take away a larger supply of iron than they actually wanted for the knives and harpoon tips. Later, when Whaler and other ships came to the seas in the summertime, there was no need to go to the Savic Soas for iron, though all the tribes knew where they were. In the spring of 1894, Peary induced one of the tribe to lead him to the place where the Savic Soas were. The journey led them to a hill, on the summit of which there was an overhanging mass of rock which justified the Eskimo description of it. Describing the discovery, Peary wrote, after passing some 500 yards up a narrow valley, Talakatea began looking about until a little bit of blue trap rock projecting above the snow caught his eyes. Kicking aside the snow, he exposed more pieces, saying this was a pile of the stones used in pounding fragments from the Iron Mountain. He then indicated a spot four or five feet distance as the location of the long-sought object. Returning to the sledge for the saw knife, he began excavating the snow, and at last, after digging a pit some three feet deep and five feet in diameter, just at 5.30, Sunday morning, May the 27th, 1894, the brown mass, rudely awakened from its winter sleep, found for the first time in its cycles of existence the eyes of a white man gazing upon it. This was the woman, a mass of meteoric iron, weighing, as was subsequently proved, three tonnes. Originally, it was said to have been twice that size, the removal of the head having considerably reduced it, while in addition there had been generations of Eskimo chipping it for knives and spear tips. The amount of iron which had been broken from it in this way was shown in the pile of stones lying around it. The Eskimo maintained that these stones had all been brought there by the men who came for iron, but if that were true, the Savic Sower must have been chipped for ages, judging by the accumulation of stones. About thirty yards away from the woman there lay the dog, a smaller mass, weighing only half a tonne. The man was some miles away, as became his dignity and size, for he was found to be a mighty mass, one hundred tons in weight, rugged in form, and so intractable when attempts were made to move him, that his removal forms a tale so full of romance as almost to suggest fiction. As it was late in the season, when Peary's ship the kite arrived, there was only time to remove the woman and the dog. The man being located, but untouched, pending the return of another season. The removal of the dog did not offer any great difficulty, and the woman was levered out of the ground and conveyed to the ship on rollers, without giving more than the ordinary amount of trouble experienced in handling heavy masses of inert material. Not so the man. With the two smaller meteorites safely conveyed to New York, a return of the kite to Melville Island to effect the removal of the man was arranged. Accompanied by a party of scientists and an engineer, Peary sailed north the following year and immediately attacked the problem of excavating and placing on the kite the largest of the three masses. The exact size was not at that time known, but as soon as the work of excavation commenced, 
it was obvious that the task in hand was much greater than was anticipated. The portion first revealed was found to be four feet in length, two feet high and one and a half feet broad. This, however, was merely a fin-like excrescence on the main mass, which, as the excavation proceeded, was shown to measure 12 feet long by 8 feet in width on the upper face, while a trench 3 feet around it did not reach to the base. It was then realised that the task of transferring such a huge mass from the place where it lay in the ground to the ship was one requiring great engineering skill, and the use of appliances of much greater strength than the kite had brought with her. The mass was about 300 yards from high water mark, and 80 feet above it. A shelf of rock ran out into the sea, immediately below the spot where the meteorite reposed, and the water was sufficiently deep alongside the shelf to make it a natural pier or wharf, where the ship could make fast for the mass to be loaded on board, when it had been removed from its resting place and conveyed to the edge of the sea. While the rocky pier was all that could be desired from the point of view of loading, it was entirely unprotected from the ice which, in the early approach of winter, rapidly accumulated in the bay. It was clear, therefore, that the removal and shipment of the mass must be carried out with rapidity, if all risk of disaster were to be avoided. By the time the mass had been excavated, and its full dimensions were revealed, the season was too far advanced for any serious attempt being made to get it on board the ship. It was estimated to weigh not less than 100 tonnes, while the rugged and angular form it presented made it an extremely difficult object to handle. All the time available was devoted to making preliminary arrangements for the definite work of removal in the following season, and as soon as the ice began to gather in the bay, the kite sailed back to the south. The meteorite, being so much larger than was anticipated, a larger vessel than the kite was required to convey it to New York. It was also necessary to have still heavier appliances wherewith to handle it. The following year, on board the Hope, Peary returned to the attack and set to work to carry off his treasure. With the aid of the male members of the Eskimo tribe, in addition to the men he had with him and the crew of the steamer, the plan of operations was commenced. As Peary wrote in describing the experience, The first thing to be done was to tear the heavenly visitor from its frozen bed of centuries, and as it rose inch by inch under the resistless lift of the hydraulic jacks, gradually displaying its ponderous sides, it grew upon us as Niagara grows upon the observer, and there was not one of us unimpressed by the enormousness of this lump of metal. The expressions of the Eskimo about the Savixoa, great iron, were low but earnest, and it and the other wonderful great irons, the jacks, which could tear it from its bed, awed them to the utmost. When it was out of the nest where it had rested so long, the method adopted was to tilt it up from one side by means of the jacks and steel cables until it stood on end, and then to force it over until its own weight made it fall forward. The spectacle as it fell brought home to the onlookers the enormous power it represented. As it slowly moved, the stones lying immediately under it were ground into powder, and as it lurched forward, the hard masses of rock were rent and split, while a shower of sparks burst from the meteorite itself wherever it came in contact with a more than usually hard piece of rock. The irregularities in its form added to the difficulties, for it was almost impossible to secure firm holds for the jacks, and anything approaching a slip on the pass of the mass was tantamount to death or destruction to anyone within reach of it. Day and night the struggle went on, the mass seeming to resist every inch of the way, 
settling itself into awkward corners and crevices, cutting its way as it fell through the balks of timber set to form a bed for it, bending and notching steel rails when they were substituted for the wood, and generally giving as much trouble as it was possible to give, almost to the extent of suggesting conscious design. Hard as everyone worked to win, the meteorite proved too much for them, and it was only conveyed as far as the rocky pier where the ship lay ready to take it on board when the ice came drifting into the bay, and for another winter the meteorite had to be left in its frozen habitat. It was the last night of our stay at the island, Peary wrote, a night of such savage wildness as is possible only in the Arctic regions. The wild gale was howling out of the depths of Melville Bay, through the hopes rigging, and the snow was driving in horizontal lines. The white slopes of the hill, down which the meteorite had been brought, showed a ghastly grey through the darkness. The fire, round which the fur-clad forms of the Eskimo were grouped, spread its bright red glare for a short distance. A little to one side was a faint glow of light through the skin wall of a solitary tupic. Working about the meteorite was my own little party, and in the foreground the central figure, the raison d'etre of it all, the Savic Sower, the Iron Mountain, towering above the human figures about it, and standing out, black and uncompromising. While everything else was buried in snow, the Savic Sower was unaffected. The great flakes vanished as they touched it, and the effect was very impressive. It was as if the giant were saying, I am apart from all things, I am heaven-born, and still carry in my heart some of the warmth of those long-gone days before I was hurled upon this frozen desert. To strengthen this fancy, that the meteorite still held some of its celestial fire and feeling, if a sledged, ill-aimed in the darkness, at wedge or block, chanced to strike it, a spouting jet of scintillating sparks lit the gloom, and a deep note, sonorous as a bell, a polar toxin, or a half-pained, half-enraged bellow of a lost soul, answered the blow. Yet another year, 1897, saw Peary again at work, this time with the meteorite ready alongside the natural wharf. It was the month of August that the Hope made fast opposite the meteorite, but already the ice had begun to drift into the bay, as though even that were going to dispute the right of man to carry off the mighty trophy. Without loss of a day, work was commenced, and a bridge of huge timbers was constructed, along which to warp the mast from the shore onto the ship. The bridge completed, 48 hours were consumed in getting the mast onto it. The pressure of its enormous weight put so great a strain on the woodwork that it visibly gave as the mass came onto it, and more than once a collapse seemed imminent. Once a slip of less than an inch upset the equilibrium of everything to such an extent that the stays and supports were apparently within an ace of giving way. It was a curious coincidence that this single slip occurred at a moment and a place where, had anything given way, there was nothing to prevent the mass rolling over the edge of the rock and sinking, presumably forever, into deep water. As it turned out, the slip was taken up in time to avert disaster, and thereafter the mass was forced, slowly but surely, onto the deck of the ship. The Eskimo were greatly disturbed at the spectacle of the meteorite passing from the shore to the ship. They all left the vessel, saying that even if it was forced onto the deck, directly it arrived there, it would smash its way through the vessel and plunge into the sea, carrying the ship and all on board with it. 
from the time work was recommenced on the task of removing the mass, storm and gales had persisted, and the sun had not been seen. The Eskimo were therefore deeply impressed when, just as the Savixoa reached the planking arranged for it above the main hold, and the tackles were cast loose, the sun shone out, a ray falling from behind a cloud directly onto the meteorite, and changing it from the dull brown-hued mass into a gleaming bronze. As though it had yielded itself to the inevitable, the meteorite gave no further trouble. It was gradually lowered into the hold and wedged so tightly into position that it was impossible for it to move, however much the ship rolled or pitched. Fortunate it was that this work was so well done, for when the return journey was commenced, the Hope had to fight her way through a series of most severe gales and storms that any on board had experienced. The meteorite had yielded, but the spirit of the Arctic evidently had serious objections to it being carried off. But the years of persistent effort had won. The mysterious source of the ancient Eskimo iron had been discovered, and at the same time the greatest meteorite the world was known to contain was revealed. It was a fitting result that the trophy should be carried from the darkness of the Arctic into the light of civilization. End of chapter 10